hello and howdy, Overlake. It is so good to be with you again. Uh, my name's Jake, uh, like Neely so affectionately said, and I am one of the pastors on the team here. And this morning, I'd like to jump right into it, and I'd like to start us off with a question, a little informal survey, if you will. By a raise of hands, how many of you at some point in your life have ever felt frustrated? Raise your hand if you have ever felt frustrated. Exactly, exactly. Now, whether you have experienced frustration or you simply refuse to raise your hand because you were frustrated by my request, here's the deal. This morning, I want to give us all just a little taste a little sample size example of uh, that feeling, that oh-so-wonderful feeling of frustration. So in a few moments, we are all going to be frustrated, and I can tell you are super excited for this. Here we go. When you walked in today, you were given a rubber band. That rubber band is for you. More specifically, it's for your hand. So if you would, would you reach down, grab your rubber band in this moment. Trust me, you do not want to miss this. You do not want to miss the most impactful illustration in the history of illustrations. 50 years from now, people will be saying, where were you during the legendary rubber band illustration? And you want to be able to say, I was right there with my little rubber band in hand, and it completely changed my life. Okay, so it's not that good, I promise. I was just trying to set it up so you'd feel that way. All right, hopefully it makes a point. Here's the deal. If you got your rubber bands, here's what I want you to do. You're not going to shoot them at me, so here's what's going to happen. I want you to take your rubber band, and I want you to put it over your thumb just like this, okay? Just like this. Everyone, this is step one. We got to do these right or else it doesn't work. Now, what you do is you take the other end of that, and I want you to put it over the back of your hand, around your pinky finger, okay? Around your pinky finger. So it should look like this. Both sides, both ends of the band are going over the back of your hand. From there, go ahead and close your hand. And then what I want you to do, this is the key, you need to take these ends and you need to pull them back on this side of your knuckles, towards you, this side of your knuckles. Okay? Everyone there? Nod your head if you're there. Perfect. Got it. All right. Here's the goal. Here's the game. I simply want you, in a few seconds, to try and get that rubber band off your hand. Now, here's the catch. Here's the key. You can only use the hand that it is on. You cannot use your other hand. You cannot rub it against anything else. I simply want you to try and remove the rubber band by only using the hand that it is on. Okay? Makes sense? All right. You may begin. Good luck. Now, for some reason, you start off and you think, oh, I so got this. No problem. It's right there. You know, because it's just so close. But then frustration will start to set in. And you'll start to stretch. And you'll start to strain. And you move your hands in some sort of gang sign or, or you do sign language that doesn't make any sense. But frustration will set in. And you'll notice it the first time you shake your hand. And I've seen you guys doing it. Just so you know, that doesn't help. That doesn't help whatsoever. In fact, there's no trick, no key, no technique, no Mr. Miyagi secret move that you need to do there. You simply need to get through the long, frustrating process. Honestly, I do not remember who first showed me this, but I promise you, whoever it was, we are no longer friends. Yeah. That is frustrating. All right, I ain't got to quit. We got to quit before I start cussing up here, and that's not going to be good. All right. Now, for all of you, 
uh, ultra-competitive people out there, I realize that uh, I've lost you for the rest of the sermon. You're going to be at this thing because you're dedicated, you're determined, you're going to defeat that rubber band. If you have to break a finger, you are going to succeed. And so to you, I say good luck, good luck. But for the rest of us, let's do this. Let's talk about frustration. We all just experience it. It's that familiar feeling of being tied up strapped down and not quite able to get free. Today I want to talk about that, but more specifically what I want to do is I want to talk about how we worship while be feeling wrapped up in our situation. I want to talk about how we worship in the midst of feeling wrapped up by our frustrating circumstances. You see, for the last four weeks we've been talking about a variety of different worshipers in the Bible. Guys and gals who chose to worship first, even if they didn't feel like it. And this morning, we're going to zoom in on a guy named Silas. A guy named Silas. Now, Silas, he doesn't get a whole lot of camera time in the Bible. In fact, from what we can read, he didn't perform any big miracles. He didn't give any big speeches or invent the everlasting light bulb. What we can tell, the only great thing that Silas seems to do is hang around the great apostle Paul. All right, and so, and when he did so, this is a great thing, he did so in what I would consider to be some pretty frustrating circumstances, pretty frustrating. And so you might think, well, why Silas? Why, why him? Why not focus on Paul, the popular one? Well, here's why we're zooming in on Silas, because we've got a whole lot of scripture about Paul written by him and about him. And in all those verses, in every one of those verses, nowhere in there do we see this type of behavior. In, in other words, this crazy response that we're about ready to talk about is not typical of Paul's behavior. Thus, it leads us to assume that Silas, oh, he was the one who made the difference. Silas was the one who chose to worship first in his circumstances. And so let's look at that in Acts chapter 16. Allow me to set the story up here. Silas and Paul, they're walking to a place of prayer. And along the way, they run into a fortune-telling slave girl. And uh, this girl, she decides that she wants to stalk them and to shout at them as they went along. And as they were going along, this went on for days. And eventually, Paul turned around and actually cast a demon out of this girl. Now, when you first read that, you think, awesome, problem solved, job well done. You know, they did their good deed for the day. They deserve a gold star, a cookie, or at least a pat on the back. But they didn't get any of that. In fact, that is not what happened. Here's what happened following that situation in verse 19. It says, when her owners, speaking about the owners of this slave girl, realized that their hopes for making money was gone because they didn't care about the money. They cared about the, they are, they didn't care about the girl. They cared about the money. They seized Paul and Silas and dragged them into the marketplace to face the authorities. Two words to notice there. Seized and dragged. Seized and dragged. Seized and dragged. Now, as a man who grew up on a farm, I'm just talking real here. The day you try to seize me and then you try to drag me, we're going to have a problem. Because I'm going to call my dad, and he's really tough. <laughs> really tough. Now, 
This is not what they were expecting. This talk caught them completely off guard. In fact, it had to be a little bit frustrating, but they're probably thinking on one hand, hey, you know what? No big deal. We didn't do anything wrong. We didn't do anything illegal. We'll just get to where we're going, and this whole thing will get straightened out. But that is not what happens. It actually gets worse. In verse 20, check this out. So they brought them, Silas and Paul, before the magistrates or the government officials of the time and said, These men are Jews and throwing our city into an uproar by advocating customs unlawful for us Romans to accept or practice. So, after being seized and dragged, they were lied about. Somebody is accusing them of something that they did not do. And it actually gets worse because the Bible says the crowd joined in the attack against Paul and Silas. So now... There's not just a couple people saying junk about them. An entire crowd has jumped on the bashing bandwagon. And check this out. Here's where the wheels, they come completely off. And the magistrates ordered them to be stripped and beaten with rods. Are you kidding me? And after they had been severely flogged. Now catch this. You might recall that Jesus himself was flogged. But the author of the book of Acts, Luke, a medical doctor, wants us to know that Silas and Paul, they were severely flogged. Not just flogged, severely flogged. Verse 23. They were thrown into prison, and the jailer was commanded to guard them carefully. When he received these orders, he put them in the inner cell, which was reserved for the worst prisoners, and fastened their feet in stocks. All right, let me see if I got this straight. Seized, dragged, lied about, publicly accused, stripped, beaten, severely flogged, and now they're being thrown in jail for doing something nice for someone else. And check out the next two words in the next verse. About midnight. About midnight. Can we just admit that this is a bad day? Can we just admit that this is a little bit more frustrating than, say, getting a flat tire or getting stuck behind a school bus or having a bad hair day? It's poor Trump every day of his life. You see, Silas and Paul, they just had the living tar beat out of them, and now they are trapped in a jail cell for doing something nice for something, somebody else. They tried to help her out. And I got to say, this must be, this might be the most frustrating day ever, ever. In John chapter 16, Jesus gives us a promise. And you know, most of Jesus' promises, we like, we print them out and we put them in like, uh, like a, a frame, and we put them up on our wall. I have never seen this promise on a wall. Here's what it says. Here on earth, you will have many trials and sorrows. First Peter 4 says, don't be surprised at the fiery trials that you're going through as if something strange were happening to you. In other words, hurt happens. Hurt happens. Now, I know there was an old bumper sticker a few years ago that might have phrased that a little bit differently, but we're in church. And so hurt happens. And here's the truth. It does. It really does. Maybe you're here today and that's you. You are right there. You just had the living tar beat out of you. And due to your circumstances, you feel trapped. 
You feel pushed down, and every time you try to get back up, you just get shoved back to the ground because of your situation. That light at the end of the tunnel, it's just another train hitting you one more time. Hurt happens. For me, the last eight months of my life, hurt definitely happens. If I'm honest with you, it has been the hardest eight months that I have ever walked through in my life. Here's why. Due to the great economic market crash, my family and I were forced to sell and to leave our home. Now, we didn't do anything financially irresponsible. In fact, it was quite the opposite. We were just a casualty. Due to the circumstances that were outside of our control, we were forced to pack up and to walk away from the place where we started our family. I mean, hurt happens. And so about three weeks ago, I went to lock up my house for the last time because this was the last time we were going to be in it. And so I thought I was by myself. I'm just going to walk through each room and I'm going to just take it in. And it's kind of my way of saying goodbye. And I can't tell you how hard that walk was for me. I went in the kitchen. I'm like, wow, that's where we used to do dinner. And and, uh, that's where my wife put her flowers. And I used to hide my Pepsi under that cabinet right there. (laughs) Then I went to my daughter's room. Oh, that one was tough. I mean, that's where I used to tuck my girls into bed, my little babies into bed. I used to sing to them, and I used to rock them in a chair that went right there. The imprints of the chair were still on the carpet when I was walking out of that room. Then I went downstairs. I opened up the closet, and there were their heights written right on the door, right there. And walked in the living room, and that's where my daughter Maggie took her first steps. And here's where Paisley used to sing to us and, and to dance for us. And that's where we did Christmas and Oh, hurt happens. And sometimes when we come up here, you might think, oh, this is all theoretical. This is just an idea. No, no, this is personal. It's real for us too. It really is. I know that hurt happens in my life. And I know that it happens in your life too. And if it's not right now, then it's just around the corner because this is a promise from Jesus himself. Hurt happens. And so how do you cope with that? What do you do? What do you do in a situation like that when your circumstances seem to close in on you and nothing is getting any better? Well, let's look at what Silas did. Verse number 25. It says, about midnight, Paul and Silas were praying and singing hymns to God. And the other prisoners were listening to them. (laughs) When I first read that, I was like, hold up, hold up, hold up, hold up. Wait a second. (laughs) Let's review again. Seized, dragged, lied about, publicly accused, stripped, beaten, severely flogged, inner stocks, (laughs) praying and singing. Okay, that's a left turn. I wasn't seeing that one coming. I'm not sure if that's how I would have responded, praying and singing. In fact, that doesn't make any sense to me. Oh, I get the praying. Hear me on this. I get the praying. Oh, dear God, get me out of this situation. I need your help now. Because we've all prayed that prayer. But singing hymns, and worshiping smack dab in the middle of a jail cell that you just got thrown into because you did something nice for someone? You see, Silas had a choice. On one hand, he could worry. And on the other hand, he could worship. He had a choice. He could worry about his circumstances or he could worship in his circumstances. And we have that same choice. When we're tied down and strapped and trapped in our situation, we can worry or we can worship. Check out this amazing quote. This is unbelievable. Your most profound and intimate experiences of worship, or the best times you will have in worship, will likely be in your darkest days. 
when your heart is broken and you feel abandoned, when you're out of options, when the pain is great and you turn to God alone. The man who wrote that quote is Pastor Rick Warren, a pastor and a dad who recently lost his son. The son took his own life. I mean, friends, come on. That's some pretty overwhelming circumstances. And yet Pastor Rick chooses to worship rather than to worry. We can worry or we can worship. And let's be honest, we so like to worry, don't we? Like worry is our natural knee-jerk reaction. It's a, when, when a situation comes our way, it's like almost instantaneous. It's almost instinct to worry. And we worry about some of the silliest things, don't we? We worry about the weather. We worry about where we're going to vacation and uh, what we're going to wear. And we worry about whether we're going to sleep through our alarm and whether we lose our cell phone or we find a good parking spot. We worry about whether we're going to get gray hair or if we're going to lose our hair or if we find a piece of ha hair in our food. I mean, we worry about those things. When we go to a party, we worry about whether someone's wearing the same dress as us. I mean, that's a big one for me. We like to worry. But the truth is, worrying, it doesn't help anything. In fact, worry is like a rocking chair. It will give you something to do, but it will not take you anywhere. Love that. Worry is like a rocking chair. It gives you something to do, but it's going to take you nowhere. Jesus asks us a question. He says this. He says, can any one of you, by worrying, add a single hour to your life? And obviously the answer is no. It's pointless. It's like a screen door on a submarine. It doesn't make any sense whatsoever. There's no reason to worry. But yet for some reason, worry seems to be our instant, quick, go-to position. We worry first instead of worship first. We worry first rather than worship first. So let's, let's, let's actually define worship for a second. What is worship exactly? Let's say this. It's definitely not just singing. It is so much more than singing. It is so much more than a set of songs on a Sunday morning. And when we reduce it to that, that is sad. Here's what worry is, and I don't mean to oversimplify it, but this is what I feel like it is. Worry is when we understand that we are this small and how small we are versus to how big God is. Worry is when we recognize how small we are in, to, in comparison to how big and great God is. You see, nobody has made their circumstances any better by focusing in on just how bad they are. Because when we focus on our problems, our problems only get what? They get bigger. But when we worship first, when we focus in on Jesus, our problems, they're put in the proper perspective. They shrink in comparison because Jesus, hear this, Jesus is bigger than our problems. Jesus is bigger than our circumstances. He is greater than whatever you are going through. What is worship? Worship is when we recognize that we don't control anything, but God controls everything. It's when we understand that the things that are over my head are still under his feet. It's when we know that God, he still moves mountains, and he's still king, and he's still Lord, and he's still God, and he still reigns. That, my friends, is worship. That is worship. I think I popped a blood vessel up here. Jeez. So here's how worship helps. Here's how worship helps. This is what worship does, and this is awesome. Number one, worship gets God's attention. 
Worship gets God's attention. Everybody has something that gets their attention. Gentlemen, remember the first time you saw your wife, you're like, whoa, she's got my attention. Worship gets God's attention. For example, as a dad, I'm learning things that I never knew about God um, from the perspective of a heavenly father because I have two beautiful girls. In fact, this is a picture of my daughter Paisley. She's three years old. And Paisley, the other day, we were uh, hanging out in the living room. And, uh, and I was doing something super important, like I was on the couch watching Duck Dynasty or something like that. And my daughter Paisley, she was down on the floor and she was playing with her tea set. She was having a little tea party with her little animals and everything. And it was so cute. And then for some reason, and I don't know why she did this. I still don't understand. But she stopped what she was doing. She put the tea party on hold. And she got up and she came over to me. And she climbed up in my lap and she gave me this big hug. And then she looked up at me, and she grabbed her, with her two little hands, she grabbed my face, and she pulled it down to her, and she says, Daddy, I love you. And then she just slipped off my lap and went right back to playing her little tea party. And I was like, wait, 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 hold on, hold on. What do you want? What do you want? Because you can have it. You want a car? You want a pink car? Because Daddy will get you a car. I mean, I'm on a pastor's salary, so I might have to steal it, but I'll get you your car. And you're like, well, she was manipulating you. Well, it worked, okay? My daughter had my attention. She had my attention. Her little expression of love melted my heart in a moment, and she had my attention. And it got me to thinking, when it comes to our Heavenly Father, how much more does worship affect and move His heart when we sing praises to him and when we recognize who he is. Worship gets God's attention. And if you think I'm making this all up, check out verse number 26. Suddenly, there was such a violent earthquake that the foundations of the prison were shaken. The Bible says that God sent an earthquake. (laughs) An earthquake. He didn't send a little dove a sweet little dove to fly down on Silas's shoulder and tell him everything's going to be okay. He didn't write on their Facebook wall. He didn't send out an encouraging tweet. God sent an earthquake. Friends, let me ask you a question. How many people do you know who can send an earthquake? You don't know anybody who can send an earthquake. You don't know anybody who can shake up your circumstances like they need to be shaken up today. And if you want an earthquake in your life, then my suggestion is that you would put your hands in the air and you would lift him up and you would sing his praise and watch, just watch what God does to your problems. Here's the thing. A pastor by the name of Carl Lentz, a young, great pastor, said this. He said, praise is a problem for your problems. Praise is a problem for your problems. God, our God, he sends earthquakes. He sends earthquakes. And not only that, check this out. Look what he does in the next verse. At once, all the prison doors flew open, and everyone's chains came loose. How does worship help? First off, it gets God's attention. Secondly, it sets people free. Worship sets us free. Now catch this. All the prison doors flew open. And everyone's chains came loose. Now, uh, loose. 
I look at that and I'm like, wait, 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 hold on. Who are the only two singing? Paul and Silas. Well, then who got set free? Everyone. God will set other people free through your worship. God will set other people free through your worship. And when God sets people free, here's the deal. He sets them free. Notice that the chains came off and the prison doors came open. I mean, think about this. How cruel would it have been of God to release the chains but leave the prison doors closed? You're like, oh, great. All I could do is run around a prison cell. I'm just going to do a couple laps in here. Hear me on this one. What this world can do for you is a temporary solution. You might have found temporary relief from an addiction, from a relationship, from some sort of situation that you're in, but unless it was Jesus to set you free, you're just running around a prison cell. Jesus sets us free. In fact, what it says in John 8, 36, it says, if the Son sets you free, you are free indeed. You want to be free? Choose to worship first rather than to worry first. Because God, please hear this, God is greater than our finances. God is greater than your busted up marriage. God is greater than cancer. God is greater than your past. He's greater than your prodigal child. Whatever circumstances you are going through, God is greater. And so no matter where you are today, no matter where you're sitting, I want you to know this. Jesus is greater than what's got you freaked out and frustrated and about ready to throw in the towel. We can worship or we can worry. We can worry or we can worship. And I hope, oh, I hope that we worship. To close this out, what I'd like to do is honestly just sit down and talk with you. Honest conversation. Let's get real for a moment. When this situation falls in my lap, when I have the choice to either worry or to worship, I'll be very honest with you. Oftentimes, I unfortunately choose to worry. I struggle with it. I do. I really do. I'm in process just like the rest of you guys. Sometimes you think because we stand up here that, you know, we've got this idea of a pastor. We have a cape on and we're flying around quoting scripture verses and kissing babies in hospitals. And truth is, we struggle too. We really do. And a lot of times when I have the choice to worry or to worship, unfortunately, I, I lean towards worrying, and that gets me nowhere. When I first became a pastor here, a while ago, I had a whole lot on my mind. I was struggling with a lot of things. I had a lot of things that I was worried about and stressed about, and I felt like I just needed to get away. Have you ever felt like that? Just want to get away? And so I decided what I wanted to do was go visit another church. Uh, and, and I wanted to go to a church where nobody knew who I was. And that was purposeful because I, I just wanted, I didn't want people to know my name. I wanted to blend in. For a moment, I didn't want to be Pastor Jake. I just wanted to be Jake again. And so I went to this great little church a few miles down the road. And my hopes of blending in were completely blown up the moment I hit the door. Because that's when I met Bill. Okay. And Bill, I don't know if he was an official greeter, if he was just standing there, but he sure was excited to greet me. Uh, because, and Bill, by the way, just, you know, he was loud. He talked loud. He's like, hello, it's good to meet you. I'm Bill. Are you new? I'm like, oh my gosh, no, please. And I was like, totally taken aback. And I'm like, yeah, I'm new. And he's like, that's great. And he came up and he gave me this huge, gigantic bear hug, which just so you know, 
is not my method of greeting. I'm totally cool with a handshake, a high five, fist bump, head nod from a distance. Those are good for me. But Bill, (laughs) he was a hugger. And he gave me this big bear hug. And then from there, he literally actually grabbed me by the hand and pulled me into the church and then proceeded to introduce me to every single person that was inside of the church. He's like, check out my new friend. This is Jake. He's new. And I'm like, oh man, it's not working out in my favor. Well, here's the thing. Bill, he had Down syndrome. And I don't think Bill had a whole lot of friends. Which makes my next move so pathetic. Because I was, with all the stuff I was wrestling with, I just wanted to be by myself. So I found a way to ditch and make up an excuse and get away from Bill. And I did that. And I found myself to the back of the, uh, of the, the, the church. I was like a couple rows from the back. And I was sitting there, and service was about ready to begin, and worship was about ready to start, and worship began. And, and I noticed, well, there's Bill. He's a couple rows in front of me, and he was not that hard to spot because Bill, no joke, was literally dancing and singing in the middle of the aisle. I mean, it was crazy nuts. If there were rafters, he would have been swinging from them. He was shouting. He was a complete distraction to every single person around him. And so I tried to focus in on worship. I tried to focus in and zoom in, and and I was having a hard time, and not just because of Bill, but because of all the things that I brought in with me that day, all the worry, all the stress, all the stuff I was trying to run away from. And then on top of that, here's what's nuts. I was, I was even worrying about how I was worshiping, about how I appeared, how spiritual I appeared to these strangers around me. I'm like, well, you know, should I close my eyes? Should I kneel? Should I raise my hand? Should I go full on Rocky or should I just carry a TV today? You know? <laughs> And, and that was when I noticed Bill. I noticed Bill again. And Bill, he was still going for it. And then this thought, this thought popped into my head. It just popped right into my head. And it hit me like a ton of bricks. And it was like the wake-up call, the slap across the face that I did not ask for. And the thought was this. I thought, Jake, who do you think God's more pleased with in this moment? You or Bill? And I just about lost it in that moment because God was absolutely pleased with Bill and his reckless abandon for worship. He didn't care what anybody else was thinking. And I found myself being jealous, completely jealous of the man who was a couple rows up in front of me. I wanted to be like Bill. I wanted what Bill had. I wanted to worship like Bill. I wanted childlike faith like Bill. I wanted to go after Jesus with that much passion, with that much energy, with that much, not not a care in the world, just between you and me, Jesus. That's what Bill had, and that's what I wanted. But you know, I was singing that day, but I wasn't worshiping. I was singing, but I wasn't worshiping. And in that moment, I thought, man, I learned something. I wish I could worship like Bill because I was wrapped up in my worry while Bill was wrapped up in his worship. And boy, did he worship. He worshiped. Friends, here's my question. Here's my question for all of us. We all have circumstances that are overwhelming. We do. It's just life. And if it's not right now, it's coming. But when those are in front of you, what are you going to do? Are we going to worry 
or are we going to worship? Are we going to worry in our situation or are we going to worship in our situation? Are we going to worry first or are we going to worship first? I hope that we are a church that worships first. I pray that we could worship like Silas and I pray that we could worship like Bill. Let's pray. Jesus, thank you for the examples that you give us in Silas and in Bill. Thank you for opening our eyes that our circumstances are so small in comparison to who you are. And why we worry about it, God, I don't know. I don't know. But I do know this. I know that you can take care of it. I know you can take that load and you can move it forward and you can, you can take our situations and you can bring us an earthquake. So God, I just pray that you would shake us up this morning. I pray that whatever is going on in our world, that you would shake us up and give us the focus to worship in on you and put our problems in the proper perspective. Thank you for the sacrifice that you've given. Thank you for loving us first so that we could love you back. We love you, Lord. Amen.